You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. It's early February, and many college students around the country have returned to their respective campuses. Other students are choosing to remain at home and attend college remotely during the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. So for this month, Locally Sourced Science is focusing on the subject of science education at colleges and universities. First off, you'll hear Kitty Gifford's interview of Dr. Frank Castelli. He will talk about his research paper written with locally sourced science contributor Mark Sharvari, why students do not turn on their video cameras during online classes, and an equitable and inclusive plan to encourage them to do so. Later on in the show, we'll hear from locally sourced science contributor Janani Harihanan. She spoke with Cornell professor... Dr. Corey Moreau, about her new class that debuted last fall, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in STEM, The Science Behind Bias. In the interview, Dr. Moreau discusses her motivation to teach this class and why it is important to tackle bias in STEM fields. And we'll finish out the program with the announcement of an exciting upcoming Facebook watch party on February 18th. The Space Planetary Imaging Facility, or SPIF, will cover the landing of the 2020 Mars mission. Now, here is Kitty Gifford's interview of Dr. Frank Castelli. Welcome to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Kitty Gifford, and today I have Frank Castelli with me. We're going to talk about a recently published paper, and one of the co-authors is also one of our Locally Sourced Science podcast producers, Mark Sharvery. The paper why students do not turn on their video cameras during online classes, and an equitable and inclusive plan to encourage them to do so. And I brought Frank Castelli in to give us some insights. Frank, your Twitter bio says you are a naked mole rat whisperer. Please explain. <laughs> so my, my, my current job is to study uh, human behavior in the educational setting. But I got my PhD studying animal behavior, including the behavior of naked mole rats. And so at Cornell, I had uh, inherited a lab from Paul Sherman of naked mole rats. And every day I had to take care of them and study their behavior. And so I studied how they used olfaction to communicate. Great. I'm glad we cleared that up. So let's talk about what you're working on currently. So I am at an educational research postdoc at Cornell through the Active Learning Initiative. And I work in the Investigative Biology Laboratory with Director Mark Chavery, co-author of the paper we're talking about today. Let's see. So we are talking about cameras and students and Zoom and teaching in the pandemic. So tell us what happened to prompt uh, doing some research about why students don't turn on cameras. So last spring, 
Uh, our laboratory course was an in-person laboratory course where we have a team of laboratory instructors or graduate students, and they meet with students regularly, weekly for three-hour lab periods. Suddenly, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to switch to online learning. And immediately, our first challenge was, how are we going to continue the semester without being in person? How are we going to do this online? And so the first question that we have to answer is, are we going to teach the class synchronously online with video conferencing software, or are we going to use um, asynchronous methods? And we weren't sure how reasonable it was to continue with synchronous meetings because we just didn't know what students' home lives would be like if they had access to reliable internet and if they had the technology to video conference. So the first thing we did was to survey our students. And the response was that the vast majority of our students would have the ability to connect. Those students who did not, the university had put resources in place that we could direct them to. And then we could also offer uh, options to um, switch sections if students were in time zones that were inconvenient. So all of this led to teaching the semester online in these synchronous class meetings. And one issue that came up in those meetings reported by our laboratory instructors were that students were not using their cameras during those meetings. What were the main reasons the students described why they didn't want to have their cameras on? So we, you know, we had this problem that students aren't turning on their cameras. And in order to solve it, we need to know exactly what is the cause of the problem before we can begin to address it. So we decided to survey the students to ask, why might you not have turned on your camera when you um, didn't turn on your camera? And so of the a priori reasons that I gave them in advance to choose from, the most popular reason they chose far and above the rest were that they were concerned about their appearance. Under that was the second most concerning uh, item was that they were concerned about other people being seen behind them and then decreasing in in frequency of selection was my internet connection was weak. Another reason, which I can get into, I felt like everyone was looking at me the whole time. I was concerned about my physical location being seen behind me. I was concerned about distracting my classmates, etc. And so there were other reasons, but there were far fewer. Some reasons that we were concerned as instructors that many instructors might be concerned about are that students didn't want to be seen doing other things or walking away from the computer but those were very low selection. And I should note that the survey was anonymous, so students could feel free to be um, honest without any repercussions. What were the main conclusions? So one major, one major concern that we had going into the class was, you know, do we require the cameras to be on for the students? And our general sense among uh, the instructors, the graduate laboratory instructors and the staff was that it, it wouldn't be fair to require this because we had the suspicion that some students are living in conditions that perhaps they are not comfortable with sharing their environment or they don't have a reliable internet or they are in crowded situations where they can't get a quiet space. And the results of the survey 
suggested that that is indeed the case. There are students in our class who describe some very personal conditions that were stressful that would very much warrant them not turning on their camera. And our students, uh, many of them were very appreciative of the fact that, that we did not require this. And so a, one major take home from this study was that do not require these cameras to be on because you can be causing detrimental effects on your students. I've noticed on social media like Twitter, there's a lot of conversation among academics and teachers that are dealing with this issue. And many have pretty strong opinions about whether cameras should be required or not. Have you noticed these conversations? What kind of controversy is going on behind the scenes on this topic? A lot of instructors can feel frustration when students don't turn on their cameras. They can say that it feels like they're talking to a void of black boxes and it's an uncomfortable situation for the instructor. When you look at the literature, you will see that there are many benefits for the camera to be on for both the instructor and the student. And so I feel like many instructors, instructors are missing these benefits. So for the instructor, the most obvious benefit of, of being able to see your student is receiving the nonverbal feedback. Instructors will adjust their pacing of a presentation based on looks of confusion or looks of boredom. And it also feels good to see a student smile if you crack a joke and it makes the teaching experience more comfortable. And then this, the instructor can feel like they're doing a better job and maybe do a better job. And it's been shown that poor lecturing or poor presenting as an instructor is a major cause for students to leave uh, their major and their sciences to drop out. And so there's a lot at stake for instructors being able to do a good job. There's also benefits for the students to see other students. Um, research shows that it helps build relationships between the instructor and the student. It helps build trust and rapport. And there's even research from uh, video teleconferencing uh, in nursing homes to show that human beings uh, feel less lonely when they can see the faces of others and communicate by video conferencing. And, uh, and several students commented that they were very happy that we had synchronous class meetings where they could see their classmates because they felt isolated in a time when we are uh, practicing social distancing to prevent the spread of disease. Those insights are really interesting because of how isolating these times have been for many people. And to draw from that, how would you say you can create an environment that feels more inviting to having cameras on? That wasn't part of the study, but uh, it might be, um, it's informing the teaching of your community at Cornell, right? So um, what kind of ways or um, strategies can you make a more uh, welcoming environment online and make students feel more comfortable with the cameras on? So uh, another finding of this research was that when students had the ability to type in another reason that we hadn't thought of, the uh, by far and away the highest, most frequent mentioned reason was something related to the social norm of the class. I had my camera off because everyone else had their camera off. And so there are a couple of types of norms. One is that what you should do and what is everyone doing. And one strategy we would suggest is that 
an instructor be explicit and say, I'd like for you to have your camera on, explain why. Um, and this would, this would give the, per, the social permission to students that this is what should be, but it has to be done in a delicate way so as not to put undue pressure on students who are not comfortable. If you set the tone early in the classroom that this is a normal part of the classroom, then there will be this social inertia where other students will keep their camera on because other students have their camera on. And so that is what is done, the norm of what is being done. And so being explicit, but gently, and explaining why. So there's research showing that explaining a pedagogical decision helps students buy into it. And then offer alternative uh, options for participation for those students who don't have their camera on. So it could be that they type in a, into a chat box, like in the Zoom chat feature, they can answer that way, or you can have polling. Basically, look for ways to keep students engaged with the classroom. Um, there's many things that, uh, there's many tools available for instructors to, to have an engaging classroom including polling and chatting. You could also use shared document resources like Google Docs or other uh, types of, of uh, Jamboard is another one where students are collaboratively working on some program outside of the video conferencing software. And you had asked earlier about setting, making an inclusive environment. So, you know, there's two issues here. There's equity and inclusion. You want to create a classroom that is including everyone. So an inclusive classroom wants to hear from all students. All students should be able to participate. And you want equity by not creating classroom environment where not all students have access to the education that you're trying to provide. So if you were to require that cameras be used and some students can't use the camera or it creates a situation where they are not comfortable, you are, you are contributing to inequity in the classroom. And so you should really think about as an instructor what you can do to improve equity. In our research, we found that uh, underrepresented minorities in science and engineering as defined by the NSF those students who identified as members of URMs were more likely to uh, provide reasons for having their camera off, like they were concerned about other people being seen behind them, or that their internet connection was weak, or that they were concerned about their physical location seen behind them. And so having a policy to require cameras on may cause uh, disproportionate uh, de detrimental effects that are disproportionately hurting URM students, which contributes to uh, inequity in the classroom. And so to answer your question more succinctly, if you want to improve uh, inclusiveness and equity in the classroom, one thing you can do is not to require cameras to be on, but also require active learning uh, activities. Will you bring something back to the in-person teaching environment that you learned from this experience? So I would encourage everyone to ask their students in a survey what they like about the online environment and what, what they might suggest that a professor or instructor take back to their class 
after we return to in-person. I still have a lot of thinking to do about that and reading a lot of our student responses, but one thing that has come up in conversations among my colleagues is students enjoy being able to ask questions by chat. And so I could imagine that in a large lecture classroom, there would be a constant mechanism through which students can type questions and then perhaps have an assistant be uh, reading those questions, kind of like uh, many of the webinars that people attend or even in our classrooms. If students have questions during presentations, they put it in the chat. And so this is something more uh, a more constant, more real-time technology that we could potentially use in the uh, classroom once we return in person. And we think that many of these results, uh, the main findings can translate to any class. You know, uh, students can come from different backgrounds and have stresses at home, and that is regardless of the university you're in. But how much that is the case may depend on the type of university you're in and the type of students you have. And so we encourage that part of your strategy be to, you know, get to know your students uh, uh, and using surveys as one tool to accomplish that. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Frank. No problem. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you have any science news? Send us a tweet at FLX Science Radio. Check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. You're listening to Locally Source Science, and this is Janani Hariharan. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Corey Moreau from Cornell University about her class titled Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in STEM, the science behind bias. So I'm Dr. Corey Moreau, and I'm the Martha N. and John C. Moser Professor of Arthropod Biosystematics and Biodiversity in the Departments of Entomology and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology here at Cornell. Thank you. Today, I'm interested in hearing about the class you taught last semester called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in STEM, the Science Behind Bias. And maybe we can start by you telling me a little bit about your motivation for creating this class. Absolutely. So, I had taught a very small um, pilot version of it when I was back in Chicago many, many years ago. Um, Just when I started discovering all of this rich literature on how bias was playing out across STEM. And then this summer when we had all of the sort of racial violence occurring and a bunch of, you know, sort of injustices and and, and human um, uh, impacts occurring that were sort of amplifying how we had inequity in our society, I thought now is the time to offer this class. So I hustled to pull together a syllabus and get it approved so that I could offer it in the fall. Yeah. And it sounds like you received quite a few students um, wanting to enroll in the class. Yeah, it was really interesting because I'd never offered the course before. Um, We were going to be entirely on Zoom because of the global pandemic, and I didn't really have a mechanism for advertising it very well. I expected that I might get a few people sign up. Um, But what actually happened was the day that enrollment opened, the class was filled by the first half of the day. And I was completely surprised by that, and we had a very long waiting list. Um, This was more of a discussion session class, so we broke into smaller groups to discuss the literature. We came back together to synthesize our ideas, Um, and the class was capped at 35 students, um, just so that we could have those meaningful conversations in those smaller breakout rooms. 
the first thing we did was sort of focus on the historical context to sort of contextualize what we were going to read about what's currently happening. So we discussed things like how eugenics really fed into um, you know, things like the Holocaust. We discussed how experimentation on um, groups of people is what actually advanced our medical fields in ways that um, the experimentation was forced. And so we talked about that and we sort of based it all within the United States. We kept the framework around sort of what was happening in our nation. We then moved into sort of what does the data say about current bias in STEM? And we focused across several different topics. And so we focused on the bias in STEM against women, against people of color, against LGBTQIA+, against people with disabilities, first generation and low income students, and so on. So we really wanted to sort of say, in a holistic way, what does the, the scientific research tell us about how bias is playing out even now, about who is invited and who is able to contribute across science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We also read some papers that I would argue are essentially a misuse of science currently. And so these are papers that have been published in the last few years where they are actually using the scientific method, but they're doing it in a way that then inadvertently reinforces bias against certain demographic groups. We near the end of the semester, we moved into what I think is the most hopeful part of the semester. And that's where we read sort of what what sort of advances have we already seen in the sort of recent decade or two and what are some steps that each of us can do both individually and as departments and institutions to limit the impacts of bias and make STEM an, a really diverse, equitable and, you know, and, and welcoming place. Did the group come up with any strategies that you thought were really effective? Oh my gosh, the group was so inspiring. I mean, we had um, on Canvas, we had a whole board where people could put down ideas, um, either of programs they already knew about or just ideas they'd come up with on their own, um, both at sort of like, you know, the national level all the way through individual level. And it was mind blowing to see just how creative and how engaged the students in the class were. Yeah, so we had a few really, um, I mean, of course, we had really impactful conversations in the course. Uh, and and some were really, you know, difficult conversations to have. Uh, but I think what I found so inspiring was towards the end of the class, um, some undergraduates in the class decided to band together to petition the university to require all STEM students and maybe even all university students to have to take some kind of a class that educates them on the bias that occurs even within our own fields. And I really thought that was ma amazing because it wasn't coming from me, it was actually coming from them. And they sort of had already put together documents and were, you know, asking you know, how to sort of get this in front of the university. And so I love that, you know, just by taking a single class, it can inspire action. Um, and they wanted to make sure that you know, all individuals across campus had an opportunity to learn um, about how bias impacts people and, and solutions to overcome it. Yeah, and it sounds like um, the students were getting a lot from the readings, but also from each other. Would you would you say this was a very sort of peer focused learning process? Absolutely. So one of the things we did to 
to sort of limit power dynamics is that one breakout room was just the undergrads. The other remaining breakout rooms were a mixed combination of graduate students, postdocs, and other faculty that wanted to join the conversation. And at first I wasn't sure if this is the right decision, um, but then we sort of polled the undergrads and grad students and it turned out to be absolutely the right decision. The undergrads felt much more comfortable expressing what their difficulties were, which in turn actually turned out to be different than some of the things that the graduate students, postdocs and faculty were um, experiencing. And so really those interactions between people um, was where I felt like some of the most um, in-depth learning came from. I mean, I learned a ton during the class, even though I was the instructor for the class. And you talked about having difficult conversations sometimes, and you talked about um, how you were cognizant of power dynamics that could pop up during these conversations. And I'm wondering if you had um, any sort of established ground rules in the class to help with those conversations. Absolutely. Those ground rules are critically important. So we actually spent the first class going over sort of what are the ground rules. So we had things like, you know, make I statements, not we statements. We had um, the sort of overarching uh, policy that uh, stories stay, but lessons leave. So if someone shares something quite personal, you, you know, you're not allowed to share that out after class. But if you learned an important lesson from it, that is okay to share. Um, we had a, a whole series of sort of ground rules to make sure that people felt comfortable. We allowed people to turn off their camera at any time or never turn their camera on if this topic was particularly difficult for them. Um, we made sure that everyone had an opportunity to speak. We wanted to make sure that all voices in the room had an opportunity, even if they are sometimes the quieter voices. And so we just really tried to make sure that it was an inclusive community during the class. And so for anyone who might be listening and wanting to try something similar, um, you know, maybe teaching a class or leading a discussion group around topics like these, what recommendations do you have now that you've taught the class once? Yeah, I would say um, don't be afraid to try. I mean, you know, it's a learning experience. Um, I have been surprised by how many people have contacted me wanting to teach a similar course at other institutions. Uh, and this happens even outside of the U.S. So people are really interested in this. So I've been sharing the syllabus. And one of the things that I'm going to do is with the course collaborators that I, uh, that I um, led the class with, we're going to actually write a paper on how to implement classes like this. And we're hoping to make it general enough that it's not just for STEM, that any field could sort of implement a similar style class to learn about where the biases are in our own scholarly work or corners of academia and what are the solutions to help overcome them. I was so impressed with the people that took the class, um, both in their compassion, um, their knowledge of the topics, and their true desire to change and make better. And I think they're just a slice of, you know, the students we have here at Cornell, or even just the, you know, people around the world. And it really made me hopeful that we are at a time where people really want to actively work to make the world a more inclusive and uh, uh, welcoming place. And so for that, I'm deeply grateful. Thanks for listening. I'm Janani Harihoran, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. There's a very exciting event coming up later this month, 
And to learn more about it, I spoke with Zoe Lerner Pontario, manager at the Spacecraft Planetary Image Facility, also known as SPIF, located at Cornell. SPIF is hosting a watch party on Thursday, February 18th at 2.30 p.m. to view the landing of the Mars 2020 mission. I caught up with Zoe to find out more about the mission and what you'll see if you tune into the watch party on Facebook. Uh, Can you describe the Mars 2020 mission? So Mars 2020 is both a rover and a helicopter. The rover is named Perseverance. The helicopter is named Ingenuity. Uh, This will be the first time that we have attempted powered flight on another world. The rover is packed to the teeth with instruments designed to both examine the Martian environment in preparation for human exploration, but mainly to be the first mission since Viking to search for actual signs of past life on Mars. Can you talk about the crater, the area on Mars where the the rover and the helicopter will be landing? Jezero Crater where we are going to be landing is just an amazing site to go and look for signs of past life. The thing that really stands out when you look at Jezero is there is an inflow channel and an outflow channel and at the mouth of the inflow is a delta, an ancient remains that show that this was once a lake a deep lake that was there for a long time. So you've got an amazing combination of rocks that will be some of the best rocks to have preserved any evidence of past life that are still in pristine condition and readily accessible to something like a rover. So the watch party, we will be watching the official NASA coverage. There'll be interviews with scientists and engineers, these beautiful short films that they put together, and you'll get to see mission control, um, but you get to see the live reactions of them as it's happening. I will also be on there uh, answering questions and giving commentary on the, the chat, the comment section that you can do. So there'll be that live interaction as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at spiff.cornell. And our Facebook address is cornellspiff.com. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Kitty Gifford produced today's interview of Dr. Frank Costelli. Janani Hariharan produced the interview of Dr. Corey Moreau. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. Science out.